small groups start a week from today. There are a variety of locations that you can get involved in that. So we would love it if you would stop by the table, check out the groups that will be starting next week, and, uh, and sign up. This is really a, a great opportunity to get to know each other, uh, to build community. Steve's going to be talking about uh, that topic today, how we are all one in the body of Christ. And it's just a great practical way to get connected at Creekside, especially if, if you're new. Um, this is a great chance to do that. Uh, I'm going to pray before we pass the offering. And uh, let's just ask God to uh, give us generous hearts and thankful hearts for all that he has done for us. Father, um, we praise you for all that you have done for us. This truly is amazing grace. We thank you that Jesus bore, the, bore our sins uh, in his body on the tree, uh, that he gave up all to take our place. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to give back with a spirit of cheerfulness, and that you would help us walk out today realizing that all that we have is a gift from you. Help us to be faithful stewards of that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. team and musicians for leading us in, in worship. I'm going to ask that you would join me as we uh, look to the Lord in prayer. Father, I come this morning as a psalmist asking you uh, to open our eyes that we might behold wonderful truths from your law. Where we lack knowledge, we ask you to inform us. Where we need courage, we ask that you would give us boldness. Where we are weak, we ask that you would give us strength. And Lord, where we are faltering in our practice of our faith, we pray that you would empower us and transform us by your Spirit's work. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The firing of Washington State High School coach at Bremerton High School in Washington, the state of Washington, is just an illustration, an example of how the Christian faith is generally, at least in the United States, tending to be marginalized and criticized and, in some cases, even demonized. So from the outside, there's this pressure on the Christian faith that, you know, just kind of go away. But there is maybe even a more difficult challenge for the Christian faith. And it's not from the outside, it's from the inside. Uh, the challenge is that it's more dangerous, and the threat comes from, from ourselves. Abraham Lincoln quoted the Lord Jesus Christ during the Civil War, and he says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I think uh, the challenge for the church of Jesus Christ, for Creekside Church or any church in particular, is yes, there's this pressure from the outside, but there is also this internal pressure to be a house divided. And Satan loves nothing more than to see the, the children of God taking aim at each other rather than in, involved in ministry. What, what would be more pleasing to the enemy than to get the children of God fighting among themselves rather than actually involved in the ministry that God has called them to? You see, for us as a church, to be about leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ, we have to be fixed on our ministry of reconciliation. Now, speak up when we're tempted to shut up. I wonder, you know, how's it going for you? You had opportunities to kind of interject Christ into some conversations lately? 
Keep praying about it. We need to be about the business of growing up rather than giving up the ministry of edification. And this morning we're going to look at the fact that we need to be about the ministry of cooperation. To build up rather than to break up in the body of Christ. We need to be a house that is not divided, a house that is united in Christ. So this morning I want us to consider from the scriptures, and I'm not... uh, I usually like to camp in one passage. This morning, I'm going to kind of take you on a, in the old days, we used to call them sword drills, you know. You kind of get the the sword out, the Bible, and you kind of go from place to place. Well, there's about three passages that we're going to uh, particularly camp on. But there are three responsibilities that enable us to consistently live as a house united for the glory of God. And the first responsibility we have is a responsibility to each other. And I'm going to start in Romans 12, 10, but we're going to spend most of our time in Colossians 3, okay? So if you turn to Romans chapter 12, we'll we'll be right there. And in this passage, Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, and chapters 1 through 11 is all about the theology. Chapters 12 through 16 is all about the practice, okay? So the practice is based on the theology and he says in Romans chapter 12 verse 10 be devoted to one another in brotherly love give preference to one another in honor okay you see we're united in the church of Jesus Christ we're united by our common faith in Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection and our trust in that that through his through faith in him we can be his children but I'm going to be honest we're, we're really kind of a bunch of misfits and, and malcontents, really, when it comes right down to it. I mean, let's, let's face it. Uh, some of us are genuinely trusting in that death of Christ and His resurrection as a payment for our sins. We know that our sins are forgiven, not by anything we've done, but what He has done for us. And we rejoice in that. Unfortunately, in the church of Jesus Christ, in, in every local expression, some of us are just pretenders. I like what Eugene Peterson says in, in his book, Holy Thunder. He says, the, the church attracts to itself persons who like to live in the atmosphere of the holy, but have little interest in being holy themselves. Which one describes... You, me, this morning. I'm a possessor. I possess personal faith in Jesus Christ, and I'm truly one of his children. Or I'm a pretender. I just kind of like to hang around holy people, you know? Gives me a kind of a a thrill, you know? Kind of makes me feel good about myself because I'm around Jesus people. I don't really want to do what they do or go where they go or say what they say or give what they give, but it's okay. Well, see, in the church, we come together, genuine believers in Jesus Christ. This is what God has called us to. This one responsibility that we have as a bunch of diverse people. Think about it. We come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. We come from different ethnic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. All these educational backgrounds, all things are different. And yet God calls us to one thing, and that is to love one another. And man, I wish I could. Our love for one another is the most powerful testimony to the reality of Jesus Christ that there ever is. That's John 17, verses 21 through 23. Our unity in the body of Christ is the testimony to the world that Jesus is real. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. The fruit of genuine faith. In light of God's mercy. Now, this is Romans 12, right? I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In light of God, uh, uh, genuine faith, in light of God's mercy, is a call to love one another. Anybody ever seen that commercial where there's this guy that's uh, standing, he's like a 35-year-old guy, and he's standing just right outside of his house. All the lights are on in his house, and the door's wide open, and he's standing out on the porch talking to his dad. And his dad says, what are you doing, son? Oh, dad, I'm just lighting up the world and cooling the whole outdoors. 
I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, you walk out the room, you shut off the lights. You go in, you shut the door, you go out, you shut the door. My children are all adults, and I still have to tell them, turn out the lights and shut the door. Paul comes along and says, this is a gentle reminder. We don't, I mean, if I was to say, what is, what is the church of Christ called to do? Well, we're supposed to love one another. The duh, everybody knows that, but we need these gentle reminders. And Paul says, be devoted to one another. And devoted is interesting because in the Greek, it is a present, active, indicative. It is something you keep on doing. It's not something you just did once. And devotion, what are you devoted to? I mean, you parents have young children. You are absolutely devoted to their protection. I mean, it's kind of nauseating sometimes. You know, mom and dad, mommies are running around. You know, it's like you have to have a few kids before you kind of get over that. It's like, you know, hey, you know, is God in charge or not? You know, some of us are devoted to our physical health. You know, we got these little things around our wrists. You know, black, blue, dark, you know, and it, it's called a Fitbit or whatever version you have, you know. I can sync it to my iPhone. I can sync it to my computer. I can download my, I, I was, there was a gal at the ball game the other night, and, and she was out here, you know, she went around and walked around the track during the, during the break time because she had to get her, her steps in. Devotion is that which we give our time, our thought, and our energy to. And in the church of Jesus Christ, he says, be devoted to one another in the realm of brotherly love. In the realm of brotherly love. And give preference to one another. Again, a continuous action. Preference to one another. Actually, the literal translation of that word, the NASB says give preference. It says to outdo each other in honoring one another. What does the world tell us we should outdo each other in? Spending. There you go. What else? We should outdo each other in performance, right? You have to perform better than the next person. You have to have more possessions than the next person. You have to spend more money than the next person. I'm going to take a minute here. Okay. If you're involved at all in planning, preparing, and putting on the activities that happen in this church on Wednesday night. Just stand. Don't take a lot of time because if I get charged for going overtime, it's your fault. Okay? <laughs> planning, preparing, participating in, in making this happen on Wednesday nights. Stand up. Okay, everybody just look around. Okay, you can sit down now. I know you're maybe embarrassed. Now, that's just one time in the church where there's ministry going on. When was the last time these people were recognized? When was the last time that we walked up to these people and said, you know, thank you for what you do? We appreciate it. I'm praying for you on Wednesday nights. I care about what you're doing for our children, for the adults, for the people in, uh, in the community and in our church. That's what it is. You know, I want to be part of a body of Christ where we cultivate an atmosphere of encouragement. Where we, we cultivate this, this atmosphere where it's appreciation, not degradation. Where there are compliments and not criticism. Where we're loving each other and caring for each other. Showing honor and, and encouraging one another in the body of Christ. Now, for health and healing in the church, the chosen, the people of God, the true believers, uh, need to act a little differently than the world. Actually, a lot differently than the world. And there's one passage, and that's the Colossians passage. I want to take you to Colossians chapter 3, because in this passage, the Apostle Paul lays out for us uh, examples of what we can do to demonstrate our love for one another, what it really means to put feet on love. The tangible expressions of what it means to be devoted to one another, give preference to one another in honor. And so I want you to look through this passage because according to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, our love for each other 
there are three things that it does. First of all, there's a command. And I'm going to, if you're in Colossians 3.12, here, here's the text. Verses 12 through 14 of chapter 3. Therefore, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, let us put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone. As the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And above all these, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So, is a command put on interestingly enough in Colossians chapter 3 verse 12 the very first word in the Greek is put on <laughs> I mean it doesn't make make sense if you say it in English but right there's a therefore as those who have been chosen of God dearly beloved put on well it's a put on as those who have been chosen of God dearly beloved why because it's put on that he focuses on get dressed up in what God wants you to be dressed up in. It's a command. It won't be long. I'll be, not as frequently, but I'll be saying to my daughter, put on a coat. Put on some pants. Put on some sweatpants. Because it's cold outside. It's a command. Now, but secondly, it's not just a command, but it's a choice. Because my daughter has a choice, whether she puts on, uh, at least somewhat, a choice to put on pants or coat or not. And so we can decide if we're going to follow this or not. We will choose as the body of Christ to love each other even when loving is not the easy or the most fun way. Wednesday, I was home, this past Wednesday, I was home to celebrate my oldest or my youngest daughter's 18th birthday. And I'd spent all day doing some other stuff. And so in the afternoon I said, I just, I just got to unplug and I just got to go out on the deck and just kind of sit there and, and spend some time reflecting on some things, some questions that I want to reflect on before the Lord. And so I'm out there and I'm about five minutes into my uh, reflection. And some little kids come to play in the playground, which is right next to the deck. And they come up, hi, Pastor Steve, hi, Pastor Steve. And these are kids that we just met, like the, the week before we... I resigned, and we're moving. And she goes, well, my mom and dad are coming, and they're going to be here in a little bit. And so I'm sitting out on the deck. Okay, that's fine. And her parents come in. And they come up, and they come up on the deck. And they're, they're, they don't speak hardly. Their English is very broken. They're not very good in English. And I'm not very good in their language. And their culture is very social. You just you hang out. You spend time together. And I'm like, I'm trying to unplug here. And uh, they come up, and, you know, there they are. You know, it's like they just walked up, and we're here. What are you going to do? Uh, see you. Go ahead and shut the door and walk away. No. I invited them up. I said, the kids wanted something to drink. I went and got some glasses, get the kids some drink, uh, some water out of the spigot outside. Then I said to the parents, would you like something to drink? Oh, yeah, that'd be great. So I went inside, got to some ice, got to some water, not from the spigot, but from the faucet inside. You know, got them the RO stuff, got them the good stuff, and sat there. And then I'm thinking, it's 5 o'clock in the afternoon, for Pete's sake, and the youth group stuff doesn't start till 6.30. What am I going to do for an hour and a half? Went in, got some chips and salsa, and got them some chips and salsa, and then Marla had made some stuff she was taking to work the next day, so I got them some barbecued pork and gave them some. They're eating a feast out there on the deck, and I'm going, oh, man, this is the, no, Shara's coming home from her volleyball practice, and we're trying, Marla's in there trying to fix the meal that we're going to have for the birthday celebration, and then all of a sudden, then there's another person over there who took my daughter's senior pictures, and, oh, Marla needs to talk to that person, and then somebody else shows up at the house, and like five hours later, Yes, this is not the celebration. I thought, it's love. It's not easy. It's sloppy. It's messy. And in the, in the name of Christ, we do what's not easy. It's a command. It's a choice. And finally, it's very concrete. There are eight items of clothing that Paul says we need to draw out and put on. They're in your wardrobe. Okay? If you're a child of God, they're in the closet. We just need to put them on. And I'm going to kind of just uh, give you the flyby through these things because we don't have time to camp on any one of them. But first of all, we're put on a heart of compassion. 
And I love the original language because, again, very early in the language, it is the word heart there that's translated heart in the English is actually the Greek word for your gut. Okay, if you'll allow me to be, your, your visceral, it is the seat of your emotion. We put on a heart of compassion. A, you feel it viscerally. It's, I enter into your pain. I enter into your struggle. I enter into your challenge. I enter into your disappointment. It's, as was mentioned in the first service this morning, we come to Hetty's mom's funeral yesterday and we are grieving, but yet we're joyful because Hetty's mom's with the Lord. Then we come in the afternoon and there's a, an infant right here who's dead. And your gut just goes, something's wrong about that. It's just, it's not right. And so you weep with those who weep. You enter into their, and I ask this body of believers, are we focused on putting on compassion? Do we enter into the struggle and the challenges that each of us have in our, in our lives? Then he says, put on kindness. Kindness, you, know, you can't run over people if you're kind. Uh, you know, kindness and running over people don't mix. Uh, it's like a choice. Each of these is a choice, okay? A choice that to be warm and sensitive and considerate of other people. I, you know, I don't know all that's happened. I haven't talked to actually Liz and Larry, but I know that people sent cards, people went over, people took food, people called them on the phone. That's kindness, You know, most of us are sitting around waiting for somebody to be kind to us. And God says, I want you to put on kindness and be kind to other people. You see, I want this body of believers to be known for walking up to people that we are here and saying, you know, how's that going for you? How, can I pray for you? Or what can I pray for you about? That's the body of Christ that puts on love and demonstrates it. Then there's humility, and that's a whole sermon in itself, but humility chooses to avoid self-advancement while regarding others as more important than themselves. You know, the people that you saw up here, they didn't show up at 1025. They were here early. They're not about themselves. They're about serving you. The people who prepare for the, the, the early service, the people who prepare the elements for communion, the people who show up, they're here to show you love. And they're here humbly. Humbly Humility is this. It's, it's thinking honestly about myself in light of who God is. It's an understanding of who I am in light of who God is. God is bigger and better and greater than I am. And then there's gentleness. Gentleness. It's a deliberate choice to be undemanding, unassertive, and not combative. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, when, if you said, what was Jesus' self-description of himself? Gentleness. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. I am meek and lowly of heart. Man, that's one that's uh, kind of in my closet, but not worn very often. Then there's patience. And the opposite of patience is pride. And patience is that I, it's a choice to suffer long at the hands of others. You know, those people who are a little bit slow on the uptake, uh, they, they just don't get it right away. Uh, they, they don't, they're not as organized as you, or they, they don't, they're not on time, you know. They're a little bit delayed in their actions. They're sitting at the parking, uh, in the, at the light, and it's green, and, you know, it's been green for like all of two seconds, and they haven't gone yet. In the church of Jesus Christ, it's, it's those people who, you know, who, who aren't as theologically astute, uh, you know, they, they just make mistakes. 
It's avoiding resentment and retaliation. It's bearing with one another is the sixth one, bearing with one another. This is tolerance of brothers and sisters' irritants. You know, we, we kind of annoy each other sometimes in the body of Christ because we're people. You know, we have little idiosyncrasies. Um, there was a, a gal that used to come up to me after I stopped wearing a tie, so I'm, I'm, I'm not trying. I mean, if you wear a tie, that's cool. That's good. I'm, I, I, I don't usually. But I stopped wearing a tie when I preached. And this gal came up to me and after the church service, you know, at the, as Howard Hendricks called it, the glorification of the worm ceremony where the people come by and, oh, that's great, good, good job, you know, all that kind of stuff. Or that was horrible, whatever. And she said to me, she goes, Pastor, did you lose your tie? And I said, no, I know right where it's at. I just didn't wear it today. And, you know, she said that. But it was a really cool thing because her son is a, is a worship pastor at a really, really big church. And I said to her, I said, well, I said, Susie, uh, that's not her name. I said, how often, you know, uh, what kind of tie does John wear? Didn't say a word. John doesn't wear a tie. You know, but we put up, I love her. You know, she's a godly woman. I did her funeral, you know. And here's the deal. We put up with other people's irritants. I used to have the people walking into my study with manure on their shoes. People who love Jesus, you know. And then they'd leave. But the manure stayed. <laughs> what do you do with that? I mean, it wasn't a sin. Thou shalt not wear or have manure on your shoes. No. So you, you, we bear with one another in the body of Christ. And then this one, forgiving one another. Here's the deal. Forgiveness, this is my brief definition of it. It's a God-enabled. You know, forgiveness is not human. This is divine. Nobody forgives anybody in their own strength. This is a God-enabled, willful decision to abandon any claim that I have a right to hurt you because you hurt me. I give it up. I relinquish my claim of any right to hurt you because you hurt me. I'll never forget, I'll call her Valerie. Valerie was a recent convert to Christianity. And by God's grace, God worked in her heart and Valerie came to the point in her heart and her spirit where she said, you know, I need, I need to forgive my dad. Valerie had been abused. Physically, emotionally, by her father. It's a horrible thing. But God's spirit worked in her heart. She said, I have to forgive my dad. She drove like two or three states away to meet with her father. He wasn't asking her for forgiveness. She did, he didn't come to her and say, would you forgive me for all the ways that I've sinned against you? But she knew that God had called her to forgive him, and she drove and she did. Met with him and said, Dad, I forgive you for all the things you've done. Sinned against in the body of Christ. That's the divine demonstration of love is that, and it's all summed up then at the end of verse 14 in Colossians 3. Above all this, put on love. It's the demonstration of each of these qualities that produces unity. Notice it says love is the glue that brings unity. Love is the glue. The perfect bond of unity. You know, bondo. You know, it's like, J.B. Liquid Weld. You know, it's the... It's what keeps us together. That's our responsibility to each other. But what is our leader's responsibility to us? Now you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And uh, Peter lays out for us, in light of, interestingly enough, in light of if you would go back and uh, look at John chapter uh, 21, where Jesus is saying to... Uh, to Peter, do you love me? And if you love me, then you'll do something. You'll feed my sheep. You'll tend my lambs. You'll feed my sheep. In light of that, we have Peter's admonition to the, to the elders. And he says, uh, 
these things, first of all, he lays out for us the elder's duty, and then we'll get to it in a little bit, the elder's demeanor. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, we are encountered with this word uh, to, to shepherd, uh, the elders of the church. There's two Greek words for elder uh, used interchangeably. One is, uh, well, there's two Greek words basically. I don't need to care what they are, but you can ask me later if you want to know what they are. But there's two basic words, okay? That, and they both mean elder. And here's the elder's duty. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. So whose flock is it? It's God's flock. Okay. It's not the shepherd's flock. They're the under-shepherds. He's the great shepherd. They're the under-shepherds. They're just shepherding the flock that God put in their charge. And you can read in Acts chapter 20. He talks about that later. The metaphor of a shepherd kind of lays out for us, at least in my opinion, three interconnected activities. Some would say four. I kind of lumped two of them together. So give me some grace here. I'll try to explain it. First of all, shepherds point the way. Shepherds point the way. How many, how many of you have ever actually been close to a sheep? You know? Okay. My dad had some sheep once. Uh, sheep aren't very bright. Um, you know? I mean, they, they, they aren't. That's just, you talk to shepherds, they're not very, very smart. Isn't it interesting that God talks to, <laughs> we're sheep. And he says, you've got to lead the sheep because sheep go astray. Shepherds lead the sheep. Exercising oversight communicates their, our authority as elders and responsibility to lead. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse, eight, uh, verse 17 um, says that the, those who rule well, okay, rule well, those who rule well. And then there's this passage in Psalm 23, which are most, most of you are familiar with. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And the great shepherd does what? He leads me beside the still waters. You know? He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. He leads and he guides. And in the same way that the great shepherd leads and guides, God calls his spiritual under-shepherds to lead and guide. And we lead and guide in directing the flock in their maturity and in their mission and what they're called to do as, as the sheep. So elders, under-shepherds, are to discern the mission of God for the people of God. Then they are to declare the mission, and then they are to direct the sheep in the mission. I met somebody at Gateway Market for lunch, and uh, I plugged the address into my phone, and then I, you know, pushed, you know, start, and uh, I saw this image on my, my phone. You see that image? No. Let's see that image. Do I have the image? I don't have the image. There it is. There's the image. So, what does Siri do? Siri identified, you know, uh, discerned where I was supposed to go. Then Siri declares to me where to go. And then Siri directs me where I'm going. Elders are to discern the mission, to declare the mission, and to direct the mission. Leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ is Creekside's mission. In maturity, and, and, and that's what we're to be about. And so we're declaring it. Our responsibility is what? Speak up. Our responsibility is to grow up. Our responsibility is to build up. Direct us in, in that mission. And then secondly, shepherds are to provide for, and I'm lumping in, care for uh, the flock. In Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not, now get this, what? I shall not want. That means that the shepherd provides for my needs because I don't want. He restores my soul. There is physical provision. There is spiritual provision. That the great shepherd, and so like the great shepherd, the elders provide for the needs of the flock. How do they do that? With our prayers. With our presence. With our help and assistance in providing physical needs. And then finally, through our proclamation of the truth 
uh, feeding the flock with the Word of God. And this is the other part of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, which says, uh, with the includes end of it, says, work hard at preaching and teaching. What do they preach and what do they teach? Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the Word, the Word of God which begins with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that we're remiss if we don't declare to the lost and to the people who are gathered, the sheep, that it is Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose again, proving His victory over sin and death, that all who would believe in Him would have forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. That's the glorious message of the gospel. That's good news. Because we're all messed up. And we need to be reminded of it. Isn't it interesting? Paul says, I preach Christ and Him crucified. That's my message. Well, that's, whoa, whoa, how, how many times can you play that one, Paul? Everywhere I go. That's what he says. That's it. Because that's the good news. And that's what elders are supposed to do. And the message is, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, is kind of the summary, summary of the glorious news. Christ died for sin. Once for all, the just for the unjust. That he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That's it. Christ died for sin. If you're here this morning and you're a sinner, which if you're here this morning, you are a sinner. Sorry, didn't mean, I mean, that's Jesus, that's not me. You know, we're all sinners. That's the Bible. And Christ died for us. We don't deserve it. But he died for us. That all who by faith would trust in his death as the payment for their sins and his resurrection as the proof and the power that he can conquer sin and death would be delivered and free. And the preciousness of the flock calls us to care for them and provide for them and protect them, uh, or provide for them in this way. And then thirdly, the, the shepherds protect the flock. So we point the way we provide care for, we provide for and care for. That's one or two, if you, you know, whatever you're counting. And then the, the final way is we protect the flock. This is Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul gathered the church, the elders at the church of Ephesus, and he says, After I leave you, be on your guard, because there are savage wolves who are coming in to lead people astray, even from among you. One of the most uncomfortable elder meetings I was in was a discussion that we had about a man who had been a previous elder, a very highly respected man in the church, who was leading a small group, and he had chosen a book to, for the group to study that was theologically off base. And so a couple of the elders had to go to him and say, you know, just not really sure about this book. Here's some concerns we have about what it's teaching. And being the godly man he was, he, yeah, that's okay. I, I, I received that, and he did something else. But we're to guard the, the flock among us. It's because it's important. So that's the elder's duty. Then the elder's demeanor, they're supposed to do this in three ways. There's contrast. It's interesting. As Peter says, there's a contrast. Three contrasts, actually. Powerful contrast. The proper exercise of, size of oversight. There are perils to avoid and practices to engage in. So here, here's how he does it. Not under compulsion. Elders serve not because they have to, but because they want to. You read the qualifications. If anyone desires the office of an overseer, it's something that they desire. But willingly, that's the ESV translation, willingly according to the will of God. I brought this. I got this in the mail. You can't read it in the back. That's fine. I'll read it for you. It says, for members only. And it's addressed to me. Annual survey. Now, I'm supposed to feel important because I got a members only annual survey to manipulate me to give money. That's what they want. They don't, you know, you get them too. Oh, fill out this, sir. You're an important person. We care about your opinion. I, get a, I mean, I've gotten, like, how many from the same group? And it's like, I don't care about that garbage. Elders are to, to, to serve willingly. 
Remember Balak in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 23 and 24? He was trying to coerce Balaam to, to curse Israel. We're to do it willingly, not begrudgingly. Um, not advertising this movie, but uh, Paul Blart, he was the epitome of doing what you want to do willingly. Okay? I mean, Paul had the most unglorious, inglorious job of all, the mall cop, right? And he couldn't even carry a gun, you know. I don't even know if he could carry pepper spray, you know, just like a warning, can't do that. And he loved his job. He did it willingly. That's what God calls elders. And isn't it interesting that it says in the text, voluntarily, according to the will of God. The ESV says this way. It says, as God would have you. It's a calling. It's not a compulsion. Secondly, they're supposed to do so not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 that he did not walk in craftiness, adulterating the Word of God. All through the New Testament, you see the, 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 the chapters. He says, I didn't do this like the charlatans over here. Integrity. He did it for in, with integrity, not dishonest gain. I've known people who tried to adopt children from overseas. If you want to adopt somebody from overseas and you want it done quickly, it's easy. You just have to bribe them. Now, I'm not suggesting you do that, okay? But they're in it for sordid gain, dishonest gain. They want some money, and if you give them money, your, your file goes to the top of the stack. That's not what elders do. Then I didn't for uh, sort of gain. Isn't it interesting? I don't know. I've only been here for a while, but I'm guessing that the elder retreat at, at Creekside doesn't take place in Palm Springs in February. Imagine that. But I'm guessing if you work as one of the top dogs at Wells Fargo or John Deere or Pioneer, you're going someplace in January that's warmer than Des Moines for your retreat. Elders don't serve for disordered gain. Now, there may be an occasion, and I will ask you as a congregation probably down the road here to, to buy a book or something maybe for the elders that we can work through and, and be spiritually encouraged and edified with, but that's not hardly dishonest gain. Yet, we can't dismiss this because, look, there's a danger. There's a danger in leadership. You pray for us. Because there's a possibility of dishonest gain, of glory, that is, is received because you are an upfront person, because you have a position. Pray that God would guard us from pride and dishonest gain. We come and break this bread. God forbid that we do it for dishonest gain and glory. And finally, he says, no longer lording it over those allotted to your charge. I read the book by Laura Hildebrand, Unbroken, the story of Louis Zamperini. In that book, Louis Zamperini was a prisoner in a POW camp in Japan. And his commandant, called unaffectionately the bird, was abusive and arbitrary in his exercise of authority. In the Church of Jesus Christ, elders are not to be abusive or arbitrary in our exercise of authority. We are not to lord it over, but to prove to be an example. And Folks, I can honestly say that one of the things that drew me to Creekside was the, the, the elders, the leaders, the current group of guys you have, I do not sense that they are in it for their own glory. I do not sense that they are in it to be abusing or lording over those allotted to their charge. You pray for us. Mark said, Jesus said in Mark 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is an inglorious job as elders, but God calls them to lead and feed and protect and care for and provide for the flock of God and to do so without any messiness. And then finally, there's a third responsibility, and that's our responsibility to the elders. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. You can write it down in Hebrews chapter 13. Don't forget verse 1, but then also focus on verse 17 because it, it says in, uh, in verse 17 that we are, 
He says, obey your leaders. But this obedience comes as part of chapter 13, verse 1, which is to love one another. This is the context of loving one another, is we obey and submit to our leaders. I mean, uh, you hired me. Uh, the elders kind of said, yeah, we think you should hire this guy. Uh, and you did. You know, well, you're stuck now. Uh, it's, that's, uh, at least for a while. Uh, but that's what it means to submit. It's, it's, it's not, now, this is biblical submission, not biblical obedience, not blind obedience. You don't obey when, they, when people call you to do something that's against the Scripture. If, if, if there are churches where they're calling people to abandon the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, there are places where they're calling them not to defend the lives of the unborn, places where they're calling them to redefine sexuality and marriage as God has defined it, that's not what you submit to and obey. Why do you do that? Because the text says in Hebrews 13, 17, they, they watch over your soul. That's a big responsibility. I'm a parent. I tell my kids, do this, don't do that. You should do this. This is the thing you should do. Why? Because God has put me in responsible position over their care. Elders are to care for us, charge us, recognize and respect the authority and the responsibility and the accountability of these elders. They have to give an account to God. And then the last part of verse 17 is, hey, you know, and if you don't do this, it's not going to be doing, it's not going to do you much good. You know, if you make it miserable for them, look out. Don't we want to be a church where we're encouraging each other? We're making life blessed for each other. There's enough hassle. There's enough hardship. There's enough difficulty without us, you know, shooting each other in the foot. We've considered what's required uh, to keep this house, this house united, you know. Isn't it cool basketball, you know, not in our house. You know, that's, that's the thing, you know. Well, let's not let Satan have a foothold in our house. Let's pray for God's grace against it. And the love is the bond of unity, Colossians 3.14. And now we get a chance to declare and pause and declare and demonstrate the basis for that bond of unity. The basis for the bond of unity is the body of Christ broken for us and his blood shed for us. That's what unites us. See, we love each other because we have been loved. We cannot give what we do not possess. And if we have been loved by Christ, then He compels us and calls us to love each other in the same way. This is the Lord's table we celebrate. If you're here this morning and you're trusting in Jesus Christ and His death alone, and that is the payment for your sins, His resurrection is the proof of the power of God over sin and death, you're just sure welcome to participate in the elements of communion. As our praise team uh, sings and leads in, in worship, it is my call to you to take that time to reflect. I want to ask you this week to take a little bit and say, you know, uh, am I putting on the wardrobe of love? Just go before the Lord. Go Colossians chapter 3 down line by line and say, where is it? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. Where am I at in that, Lord? Which one do I need most and show me how? And in this time of reflection, just get your heart right with God. And then as the Spirit moves you, you come on up and you take the bread and you take the cup. Nobody's compelled, but everybody's invited. And if you're here this morning, whether you're a believer or unbeliever, just take it as a time to, to reflect on uh, what it, what it explains why we call to love each other because of Christ's love for us and the motivation we have for it. Father, we thank you for body broken, blood shed for us. May we reflect and remember you in this moment. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray.
Three gentlemen had to be recruited to play on the same team. Three superstars. You may not recognize who they are. You can ask somebody later uh, if you want to. LeBron James and Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade. Each of these superstars had to understand their role on the team. They weren't competing against each other. They had to work together leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ requires that we work together united in our focus on ministry not on shooting each other in the foot if we want to do that we need to love each other uh, we need to lead as elders and we need to submit and obey as God's people let's pray father it is my prayer that we would bless the Lord through our relationships in this body of believers, that we would be a bold and bright and powerful testimony to the reality of Jesus Christ through the way that we love each other, through the way that our leaders lead, and through the way that the body of believers submits and works together and comes together for the glory of God and the gain of his kingdom. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. May the Lord bless you. Go in peace. You are dismissed. <laughs>